Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Kayla and I, we needed an Easter play, and I said, Kayla, I love writing plays. Nobody knows that about me, but that's like one of my secret loves is to write plays. I used to write plays when we lived in Vista for the women's ministry and for the kids' ministry. I love writing plays. It's just fun. And so I said, Kayla, let's write a play that will really capture the imagination and the heart of the children. I wanted them to like feel the resurrection of Jesus Christ, kind of feel the power of the resurrection. So I thought, let's do a play. So after I volunteered to do this play with Kayla, I'm like, I don't know anything about writing any plays. You know, what are we going to do? How do you communicate something like that to children? Because if you make it a drama, you've lost the kids, right? You gotta have a comedy. How do you make the resurrection of Jesus Christ fun and something that they can laugh and enjoy? And then the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. Have it be two angels who are talking on the stone. See, in the account of the resurrection in Matthew, it says that an angel descended, the earth quaked, and he rolled the stone away and sat on it. I said, I'm writing a play about that angel, and I'm going to call him Theophilus. And so in the play, Theophilus wasn't supposed to land on the, in the garden with such power. He wasn't supposed to do the earthquake thing. It's just the way Theophilus, he was a little overly excited about rolling that stone away and showing everybody that Jesus wasn't there. And, and then Theophilus, you know, so Barnabas, the other angel, shows up to say, now Theophilus, you know, what happened to these guards? And then, you know, Theophilus says, well, I, I don't know. I, ju- I just, you know, came down and, and, and I don't know, something happened when they saw me, like, Theophilus, what look did you give them? You know, just the, he's risen look, you know? And they fainted dead away. I mean, they haven't come to in a while. And so you've got all this empty armor in front of them. And then Barnabas says, okay, I've got orders from the top. Some women are coming. They were followers of Jesus. These are some of Jesus' favorite women. And and God wants us to make sure that you don't scare them away. So you're gonna have to say, don't be afraid. So show me how you're gonna do it. So then of course Theophilus says, don't be afraid. And he's like, no, that will not work. How about this, don't it be afraid. So he tries these different ways and then he's gonna do the he is risen. So they go back and forth practicing what he's supposed to say to the women. And so the kids are laughing, but they're kidding right? Because as Shakespeare said in Hamlet, the play is the thing in which will capture the attention of the king. There is something about seeing it in living form that draws you into the drama. More than television, there's that screen. But there is something about real life drama that draws you into the play. That's exactly 
what we have in this epistle, this short letter to Philemon. All through the Bible, God is often using people's lives to play out in front of us so that we can see, so we can learn. Like through the life of Abraham, what do you learn? That's right, faith. They all answered at once. You just couldn't hear it. But through the life of Abraham, you learn faith, right? This is what it looks like. It looks like when God doesn't come through, when it looks like there's no way these promises can come through, God is still working, and God is still going to keep his promises. Through the life of Joseph, you realize that even though, you know, again, the promises of God, and he's been taken off to Egypt, and it looks like it's over, God is working in unforeseen circumstances to bring about his purposes. And we learn that God never, ever stops working. But we see it. Not because the Bible says God never stops working. No, can you imagine if the Bible was just principles? One principle after another. Learn this, God never stops working. Okay, but no. Bible goes one further. It says, let me show you the life of Abraham. Let me show you the life of Joseph. Come into the drama. See it. No wonder God would ask Ezekiel to, to play act this. You know, do a little shadow box of Jerusalem and just act it out. And then the people will come around and watch. Or to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, put on a brand new sash. Just wear it, kind of, you know, show off that sash and then take it and bury it and then come back. And when the people see how decrepit the sash is, then you tell them this. You see, God is always calling us, all of us, through our conundrums, through our life conditions, through our crises, into this drama where we get to be the stars and the heroines, so to speak, and act out the love, the forgiveness, the transformational power, and the grace of God. People can look at you and see it. Just as Paul said to the Corinthians, you are God's You're his story. You're his letter. Read by all men. Not written on tablets of the law, like just rules, but written on the heart. Philemon is a living example of the love, forgiveness, transformational power, and grace of Jesus Christ played out in the cultural conundrum of Colossae in New Testament time. It is a drama because it will defy cultural norms, topple the protocols of civil traditions, upend the priorities of society, and draw attention to itself by its brazen paradox of all that is self-protecting, self-insulating, self-aggrandizing, and self-promoting. 
And in this historical setting of Paul, what the drama is extreme. And we don't catch this drama because we don't realize that in Paul's time, in the Roman Empire, which had about 7 million people, 3 million people were slaves. That's just the Roman Empire. That's not talking about the world and all the you know, other civilizations, but in the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. In fact, Aristotle wrote a book on slaves that became kind of the, the book on slaves. Of course, he was a Greek, but it was used by the Romans. And he said this, so any piece of property can be regarded as a tool enabling a man to live. And his property is an assemblage of such tools. A slave is a sort of living piece of property. And like any other servant, is a tool in charge of other tools. Can you imagine how degrading is that? Just a tool. Just something that I utilize for my needs or for my business. At the same time, there were dangerous bounty hunters who would look for runaway slaves. They could be hired, or they could just suspect that someone's a slave. They would actually torture them at times to find out who their masters were. The master was allowed by law to break a slave's legs if he ran away. He could also imprint um, a letter on his forehead, brand it, so he, everyone would know who he belonged to from that time forward. It was incredible. The government was so afraid of slave uprising, slave results, that their solution was to take more and more and more rights and the humanity away from slaves, and then to publicly punish runaway slaves in the greatest and most barbaric ways. In fact, most victims of crucifixion were either rebels of the state or runaway slaves. When Paul wrote to Philemon and made this request, he was defying the social construct, the social conditions, and the cultural norms of his time. But he was inviting Philemon into a great drama which together they could display the love, the forgiveness, the transformational power, and the grace of God. Paul says, partner with me in this. This can be good. Philemon, we can set a standard. We can make the earthquake. In Oxford, England, there's this monument to Latimer and Ridley. They were two men who were burned at the stake um, for the gospel, actually, for having a Bible. And they were burned at the stake, both of them together. And before they died, I think it was Latimer turned to Ridley and said, Latimer, today we will light such a flame in England, one that could never be quenched. 
In other words, Latimer was saying to Ridley, we're part of a great drama that will have a rippling effect for years to come. Years, thousands, hundreds, uh, sorry, hundreds of years to come. This drama would not only be played out before Aphia and Aristarchus, Philemon's family, but before the church that met in Philemon's house. This is in verses one through two, but also the whole church, all the saints, the city of Colossae, and the world would also see this. This is so revolutionary for this time. And Paul is not trying to cajole, manipulate, force, or even order Philemon to do something that Philemon does not want to do. He is inviting Philemon into the great vignette in which Paul, the aged, and the prisoner, and Philemon, the slave owner in Colossae, can show the world, the love, the forgiveness, the transformational power, and the grace of Jesus Christ. It will be played out. So from a jail cell in Rome, the old apostle writes a letter on behalf of his newly begotten son in the faith. Now what's interesting is the Talmud, which Paul knew really well, says, if one teaches the son of a neighbor the law, this is the same as if he had begotten him. So Paul, in leading Onesimus to Jesus and then teaching him the gospel, he became a father, according to the Talmud, to Onesimus. I know I have been there. Oh, nope, can't find my place. So we'll just see what happens. Ah, Onesimus had belonged to Philemon. He had lived in Colossae. In fact, in Colossians chapter four, Paul makes reference to uh, Tychicus coming with Onesimus. And he says about Onesimus, he said, Onesimus, who is one of you, a beloved brother, one of you. By intimation, Onesimus had stolen property from Philemon, verse 18 of Philemon. However, when he was in Rome, Onesimus had encountered the apostle Paul. The how is not told us, and many have suggested a host of scenarios in which this happened. Your group probably did that too. But somehow Onesimus had received the gospel and it had transformed him from being useless to being a benefit and a blessing, not only to Paul, but to the Lord and to the church. Now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon with Tychicus, probably to protect Onesimus from bounty hunters. 
They are also carrying the epistle to the whole Colossian church. Remember the church that met in Philemon's house? As well as this personal letter to Philemon. It kind of reminds me of how, you know, your kindergarten teacher used to pin that letter on the back of you that was to go to your parents. It's almost as if, you know, Onesimus is carrying his own letter of introduction and instruction to Philemon. Paul appeals to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, his former slave, to receive him not as a servant but as a brother in Christ, and then to put any debt Onesimus might have incurred on Paul's tab. It's not just Paul's appeal to Philemon that we're interested in this morning, but the way Paul appealed to Philemon that I want to draw your attention to. By way of reminder, Paul does not manipulate, but he invites. It begins with Paul inviting, sorry, it begins with Paul reminding Philemon of who Philemon is in Christ. You see, I think that's our first place where we go wrong. We have to know what our role is. Who are we? But who are we in Christ? This is pivotal to everything else that will follow. My mistake is when I forget who I am in Christ. And I think, I've got rights. And I realize, oh no, I gave those rights up to the Lord. Actually, I had that. I had that epiphany even as I was at the hospital. I've got this thing called Meniere's, and I've got this, you know, these uh, uh, adhesions. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I think I thought I was my own for a while. But I refuse to be a slave to Meniere's, and I refuse to be a slave to these adhesions. I am a child of Jesus Christ. I belong to you. This is who I am. I'm yours. So you, these are tools for you to use for your glory. These will not define me, but I will give them to you to, for your use, for whatever drama, and I've had some drama, you want to use these in. I mean, I think it really shows something amazing when the Holy Spirit overwhelms you. So you're thanking the girl who's putting the nasal tube down your nose and, you know, feeding it to your, sorry, I told you I wouldn't do it, but just one won't hurt, to your stomach. And you're saying, thank you so much. You did such a good job. I mean, it's miserable. But that nurse was amazing. One try. Last time it was five tries. I really appreciated this one. Be pulled into this drama to, to, to live it out, to walk it out. It requires that you know what your identity is and who you are in Christ. This is who Philemon is. This is who you are. Beloved friend, Fellow laborer, verse 1. Host of the church in Colossae, verse 2. The one who helps the church. The one 
who facilitates the church so they can meet, the one who's taking a chance by letting all these believers be in his house, the recipient of God's grace and peace, verse 3, a subject of thanksgiving in Paul's prayers, verse 4, a beacon or example of love and faith in God and God's people, verse 5, a recipient of all good, God's good gifts through Jesus, a refresher of the hearts of the saints. This is when I knew I was supposed to teach this. The literal rendering of this in the Greek is a healer of the bowels of the saints. Thank you. It's exactly what I need. It's what I'm praying for. A healer of the bowels of the saints. Paul then talks about his own authority and identity. He has the authority to be bold, but that is not needed. Verse 8, he's aged. Doesn't that give some of us just a little pause for joy? And he's also imprisoned. I mean, does that sound like authority? From prison and I'm old. He's not ordering. I'm asking you because you're my friend, because you love Jesus. Paul continues by citing the transformation in Onesimus. He's his son, begotten to him while Paul is in chains, verse 10. He was the unprofitable, but the transformation now that he's profitable, and he's profitable to Paul, and he will be profitable to Philemon, verse 11, and dearly cherished by Paul, verse 13. This is someone that I dearly cherish. There's something about being loved that kind of like, you know what I mean? Like, be nice to them. They're my friend. I love them. You're like, don't just treat them like anybody. They go to my church. You know, I love them. This is an incredible person. I tend to tell everybody's testimonies because I'm so, I, I want people to know this is an extraordinary person. This isn't any run-of-the-mill person. These have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, being in the hospital and not having a husband who's coming to visit or who cares, you want to say, I do have friends and family. (laughs) I'm not a nobody. Paul is saying Onesimus is not a nobody. He's not just a tool. He's cherished. He's beloved. He's important to me. He's a blessing. He, he's transformed. He belongs to the Lord. Then the invitation. Philemon, for love's sake, verse 9. We have the opportunity to demonstrate love, to show what love does, what love looks like, what love sounds like. We have this opportunity for love's sake. Then he asked for Philemon's consent. Paul again refused to use his apostolic authority, and he refused to simply keep Onesimus. He wasn't going to keep Onesimus for himself to make him another slave. 
He was returning him, and in returning Onesimus to Philemon, he was bringing Philemon into the drama, into the play, into the opportunity. And here's the opportunity that Paul presents to Philemon. He has the opportunity to receive Onesimus back eternally as a beloved brother and not a slave, verse 16. As such, Onesimus as a brother, not a slave, would be a greater blessing to Philemon, to Paul, to the Lord, and to the church. He's inviting him into the opportunity to work with Paul in this. As he says in verse 17, count me as a partner working alongside you. He has the opportunity to place any debt, either forgive it, that Onesimus has incurred, or to put it on Paul's account, verse 18. He has the opportunity to show Paul his gratitude for his own salvation, verse 19. Finally, oh, he has the opportunity to bring divine joy to Paul, spiritual joy, without any other source but the Lord, verse 20. And finally, he has the opportunity, verse 20, to heal Paul's bowels. That phrase, refresh my heart, is actually heal my bowels or restore my bowels. This is the opportunity Paul is absolutely confident that Philemon would enter into this vignette. That Philemon would not only receive Onesimus, but he would even go beyond what is asked, verse 21. And that Philemon and Paul's relationship would even be enriched by this opportunity Verse 22, because Paul is asking Philemon, get the guest room ready for me because I'm coming. But Paul is also confident that Philemon was praying for Paul's release and that those prayers would be answered so that Paul, even as Onesimus was set free, Paul would be set free from prison and come and spend time in Colossae with Philemon. Again, this great drama was played out before Philemon's family, Aphia, his wife, Archippus, possibly his son, the church that met in his house, the whole city of Colossae. People would hear, not only then, but up to the present day, of Philemon's extraordinary act. During the abolition movement in the United States, Philemon was the key passage that pastors used to um, stress the need, the um, extreme need to set the slaves free, that in Christ, if we're a Christian nation, there should absolutely, under no circumstances, be slaves. So the people would hear, but also in Philemon's time, other slaves would hear Onesimus' testimony. 
and that in Christ, every man, every slave is set free. That in Christ, all men and all women are equal. Masters would hear and wonder at such an act. And what would cause someone like Philemon to do such a thing and to go against convention? Believers would hear and be convicted and reminded of the transformational love of Jesus Christ and moved to show that same love. In conclusion, God is calling all of us into this drama. And we all have a part to play. He's written out a script for each of us. And he's given each of us a role. And it begins by knowing, what is this role? What's my identity? Who am I now in Christ? Who am I? The set is your life. The conundrums, the crises, the conditions, the hardships. It's your life. This is where we play it out. Are you a mom? Play it out there. Are you the mother of a runaway prodigal? That's where you play it out. Whatever you're going through, whatever, this is your play. This is your opportunity. Take your role by finding your identity in Jesus Christ. And then, because you are in Christ, your script is love, forgiveness, to show that uniqueness that is in you through the transformational power of Jesus Christ and grace. Again, we accept this role by knowing our identity in Christ, knowing the one who is calling us. None of the circumstances of our life came because we're victims or because, you know, Satan got one in on God. There is not a circumstance in your life that God can't turn around for glory. There is not an iota of suffering that God can't use for glory. It is all about, will you accept the role? Will you give him the conditions of your life? Will you give him the setting of your life? Others are watching, and this is your opportunity. When I was a teenager, as Chuck Smith's daughter, I felt like I lived in a fishbowl. Like just every place I went, I ran into Christians, but there were some who would, I was constantly being criticized, just constantly. I, I wore a two-piece bathing suit once, and oh my goodness, I almost received public shame for that. It was crazy. It was just the way that my life was. And I remember complaining in prayer to the Lord, and I remember the Spirit of the Lord speaking to me and saying, Cheryl, this can either be an opportunity for you to show, to show others how to walk with me, or it will be a curse for the rest of your life. Your choice. 
And I said, well, opportunity, of course. I'll do it as an opportunity. And then no longer was it a curse, like, quit watching me, quit looking at me. It's like, look at me, I love Jesus. Look at me, I'm going to church because I love church. Look at me. I'm going, you know, I went to church like every night of the week. I loved church, loved it. And it became an opportunity. In the same way, the conundrums of life can turn into a divine opportunity or a curse. It depends on whether we will accept the role that God is asking us to take, that he's inviting us to take, that he's putting before us. If we accept these roles, we have the opportunity to partner, to partner with God, to work with God, to bring glory to the work of Jesus Christ, to show that Jesus is alive by our love, by our forgiveness, by the transformation in us, and by grace. We can showcase this to our families, to the church, to our community, to the city that we live in, and ultimately to the world. If we do, we have the opportunity to set this example for others. But not only that, you have the opportunity to heal the bowels of others. Had to get that in. Sorry, because I need that right now. And you all have that opportunity. And Jesus is inviting you into it. Isn't that like awesome? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible invitation that was not only given to Philemon, but is given to each of us. Lord, to be part of your script, to, to have our own storyline. Lord, we pray that by your grace and by your power and by your love that you manifested through Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion, through his blood, through his glorious, powerful resurrection from the dead, through his ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That love, that grace, that forgiveness, that transformation is now ours to live out in living color. Lord, work in us to say yes in Jesus' name. Amen.